So my assignment for today is defending the family. When I received that assignment from the elders, a couple of questions immediately came to mind. The first was, well, what are the threats that face our families today? That led me down quite a trail. We could spend the rest of my time here talking about all the various threats that are arrayed against Christian families here in America. But I think just as important was the second question that came to my mind, which is, what do we have to defend ourselves with? So I'd like to talk about both of those this afternoon. And before I get into that, I do want to remind us of a couple of things. Number one, as many people have noted, there are three institutions that God created for mankind, government, the church, and the family. And those first two depend upon the health of the third. If the family is unhealthy, then that leads to an unhealthy nation. It also leads to unhealthy churches. If you undermine families, you undermine the church, and you undermine the nation. So let's talk about a few threats, and as I said, this is a very uh, prolific area. We could talk about a lot of different things. I, I found three that I think are of particular importance this afternoon, and whether or not you think so leave it to your judgment. The first threat I think we should take into consideration is the idea of busyness. Not business, but busyness. It's an American virtue to be busy. And as I was contemplating this particular threat to the family, it made me think back to my own experience growing up when I was Growing up playing baseball with my friends in the summer baseball league, we had 10 baseball games. And we were very fortunate in that our league was overseen by my uncle, Sam Techmeyer. Some of you know Sam. I think probably all of you know my uncle Sam. And uh, that baseball league played baseball games on Wednesday nights. Well, because he was president of the baseball association there in our area, he was able to arrange it so that our baseball game started at 8.30 on Wednesday night, so we could leave from the Smart Road Meeting House, drive straight to the baseball field, get warmed up, and play our baseball game at 8.30 that night. It was really nice. Did that for several years with some of the, the young men there at uh, Smart Road. And I think back to my high school experience, I was part of the music department in Lee Summit, and we had some directors there that were very adamant that we were not going to have performances on Wednesday night, and they did everything that they could to accommodate uh, religious conflicts, as I recall. They were very good about dealing with those conflicts as they came up. So I, as I think back to my childhood, I, I feel like I had it pretty easy, and it seems to me just from personal observation, that kids have gotten a lot more busy these days, haven't they? It just seems like there's a lot more activities that draw on a family's time. When I was teaching at Lone Jack over 10 years ago now, I remember I had these, these uh, young ladies who were a part of our, our flag uh, core there in the marching band and they would get together at 6 a.m. and they'd have flag practice from 6 a.m. to about 7.15 and they'd get cleaned up and we'd start band at 7.30 and they'd go through the rest of the school day and then 
Most of those girls played softball, which had practice right after school, and then they had volleyball practice after that, and they'd finally end up leaving school maybe 8 or 8.30, and then a lot of them were honor students, so they'd go home and they'd do homework, and I don't know what time they'd go to bed at night, but it would then just hit repeat in the fall, day after day after day, and I just remember thinking to myself, there's just a lot of busyness going on here. Now, there's a lot of advantages to activities. There's a lot of of good things that can be taught by being a participant in sports. You can talk about the value of teamwork, of discipline, of goal setting, of attention to detail. But when we begin to fill our lives with activities, when we begin to say yes to some things, we are inevitably saying no to other things, right? It's just the way life works. So the more activities that I say yes to, that means I'm also saying no to other things. And it demands the question, what are we sacrificing, really, in the long run? Because something is being sacrificed. And it's not just activities that make demands on our schedules. Some people work really hard, a lot of long hours. I want to be very careful here because I know that there are people here that In order to make ends meet, in order to provide for their families, you have to work two and three jobs and make incredible sacrifices in order to provide for your family. And I I honor you for that. I believe that that is a good thing in the eyes of God, to provide for your own. So I certainly don't want anyone to mistake me in, in thinking that I'm being critical of those of you that have to do such things in order to make ends meet. Yet by the same token, we are in a society which defines your value as a person by the things that you possess and by your achievements. You are defined by what you possess and by your achievements. And some people spend a lot of time pursuing both both of those things, and yet, to what end? You know, I've heard a lot of adults who grew up poor look back on their childhood and say, I never knew that we were poor growing up. Maybe you've been one of those adults who have said it. I never knew I was poor growing up. And they say that because they had parents who loved them. They had all the necessities. They didn't go hungry. They didn't go unclothed. They had a roof over their heads. So it makes me wonder, what are we sacrificing all this for? So it's not just activities, it's also this culture that we live in that exalts achievement, that exalts materialism. And all these things draw upon our time. It's why Paul says in the fifth chapter of Ephesians that we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. There's nothing inherently evil about a day. A day becomes evil by how we use it, right? We have this time that's been given to us and how we choose to use it can be used either toward righteous or unrighteous ends. And a lot of people, when they talk about busyness, they want to focus on the lagging attendance on Sunday night or Wednesday night. And I'm not going to go down that road today, because I think a lot of people have already said it. 
Busyness, though, affects families more than just lagging church attendance. In the United Kingdom, they conducted a survey where they found that one in ten adults never eat a meal with their children, and another 10% only share dinners once a week. I grew up in a family where one of our traditions was the family dinner table, and that was a really good tradition. A lot of good things happen at the family dinner table, and it's interesting what they are discovering through research is that time that a family spends sharing a meal, interacting with one another, is incredibly important to a child's development. In 2010, the Canadian Health Behavior of School-Aged Children conducted a study of 26,069 adolescents ages 11 to 15 years. And what they found in that study was there was an association between the frequency of family dinners and positive and negative dimensions of adolescent mental health. It's interesting, isn't it? Something as simple as a family dinner on a regular basis helps juveniles develop better mentally. They have better mental health. In a 2004 study published by the Journal of the American Medical Association found that eating family meals may enhance the health and well-being of adolescents. So this research is bearing this out. But what happens when families get more and more busy? Well, things like this simple meal time together, that gets sacrificed, right? Those are the things that begin to suffer. And we don't realize the consequences because sometimes as parents, we're sort of living under siege, right? We can't see the forest through all the trees. And as these small choices begin to mount up and develop into bigger problems, we lose much in the end. I need to get moving here. A second threat that I see to the family, and this may sound a little funny at first, but I just want you to stick with me for a moment. A second threat I see to the family here in America is a, uh, a danger toward going to extremes. And I'm going to use homeschooling as an illustration for a few minutes this afternoon. Now before I get to my main point, I do want to offer a disclaimer. My wife and I have chosen to homeschool our children. So what I offer this afternoon, I'm not doing so with, from a critical point of view. But I think there are some warnings that we need to take heed to, brethren. I also want to say that homeschooling is not a panacea. It is not a solution to all problems, as some people would have you believe. It does offer solutions to some problems while creating others. And I want to be very clear that godly children can be raised in a public school setting and in a homeschool setting. Conversely, ungodly children can be raised in a public school setting and in a homeschool setting. The decisive factor in child rearing is, and always will be, the parenting a child receives. Period. End of discussion. 
Now, I realize there may be some people here that may see homeschooling as an extreme option in and of itself. But let's bear in mind that this is just one of many legal options by which a parent can have their child educated. Private school is certainly a legal option. Montessori is another legal option. Public schools, of course, and homeschooling. These are all legal options here in America. And as legal options, this falls into the area of Christian liberty. This is a judgment call that all parents need to make for themselves. So having offered those disclaimers, now let me get to my warnings. I have noticed in the evangelical homeschooling community a virus. It is a virus of arrogance and self-righteousness that runs rampant through that community. Let me give you an example. There is a denominational church here in America that will not allow you to join their church unless you homeschool your children. They will not accept you unless you homeschool your children. We have a denominational church in our area that puts incredible amounts of pressure on families to homeschool their children. And to do otherwise, it is implied, is to resist the very will of God. That you are abandoning or forsaking God's will for you as a parent in raising your child. These, brethren, are extremist tendencies that have no place in the body of Christ. My concern for the church is that homeschooling, in some cases, in some relationships, has created a rift in the church. I have noticed that homeschooling families naturally gravitate to one another And those who choose to educate their children otherwise feel excluded from fellowship. I have sat in the living rooms of parents who have observed the exact same thing. And they have felt like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because of their choice otherwise. I think it's of terrible importance, brethren. If you choose to homeschool your children that you be very careful how you present your rationale for that decision and how you present that decision to your children as it concerns the body of Christ. Are you allowing a reactionary and unbiblical application of Scripture to draw rifts within the church? Are you unintentionally creating divisions within the body of Christ Are you teaching your children favoritism? Partiality is a serious, serious sin. God hates a sower of discord. Homeschooling can be a very good thing. It can be a real blessing to a family. But there are extremist elements at work in the evangelical homeschooling community that are having an influence on the church. So brethren, beware. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. One final threat that I see facing the family today. And that is 
the redefining of the family. In the September 1st, 2014 issue of Front Page Magazine, Mallory Millett, a former feminist, related her experience from 1969. She was invited by her sister Katie to a, quote, consciousness-raising group. And the meeting began with a chairperson conducting a call and response. The chairperson begins by asking, why are we here today? The group responds, to make revolution. What kind of revolution, she replied. The cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make the cultural revolution, she demanded. By destroying the American family, they answered. How do we destroy the family, she came back. By destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch, she replied, by taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. How can we destroy monogamy? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality, they resounded. According to Ms. Millett, that group proceeded with a long discussion on how to advance these goals by establishing the National Organization of Women. It was clear, according to Ms. Millett, that they desired nothing less than the utter deconstruction of Western society. The upshot was that the only way to do this was to invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution. The media, the educational system, universities, high schools, K-12, school boards, etc. Then the judiciary, the legislatures, the executive branches, and even the library system. This is a former feminist writing about her experience in 1969. And has all that come to fruition? It is. We are seeing these efforts come to fruition here in America. And you notice toward the tail end of that call and response, you see the tactic. How do you destroy the American family? What is the ultimate tool against the American family? By promoting what? Promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality. You destroy the family through sexual immorality, period. We are engaged in a war of sorts. It's a spiritual warfare. And we are on the defensive. We are threatened by many different things. And I've just talked about three that I think are, are worth noting today. Busyness, a tendency toward extremism, and also the redefining of the family. Redefining what it means to be mom and dad and children. What the American family looks like. All of these are an assault upon what the Bible teaches should be the family unit. But I don't want all this to be bleak. I'd like to get into what I think are some effective defenses against these attacks. I think the first thing a family can do to defend itself against these attacks is simply to love 
one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 8, Paul talks about spiritual armor, but he describes it a little differently than he does in Ephesians chapter 6. He says that we should put on the breastplate of faith and what? Anybody remember? Faith and what? Love. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. That's different over in Ephesians 6. But it's interesting to me that one of the ways that we can defend ourselves against spiritual attacks is by protecting our most vital organs, if you will, the most crucial parts of our spiritual being with faith and love. Love is a defense against the assaults of our culture. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse number 17, Solomon observed, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. In other words, it's a lot better to be in a house sharing just a common meal with common folk than it is to be in a great house sharing a wonderful meal with rich people. But what makes it better? It's love, isn't it? Love. Love is a defense against those things that assault us as families. Another defense I think we can raise up against the assaults of our culture is a consistent spiritual life. I'm indebted to many good brethren for their advice down through the years. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received was from my grandfather, Chad Freeman. Before I had children, he said to me, the best thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. I kind of had an inkling of what he was saying then, but I've come to really appreciate that now. It seems to me that one of the problems in America is that we've got the wrong center to our home. Too many homes center around the children. When in reality, the center of the home should first and foremost be God, and then radiating out from there, who? Parents and children. In too many homes, we've got the tail wagging the dog. And if you want scripture, take a look at Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. I don't think Paul puts these things in this particular order by accident. Notice that within the economy of God concerning families, that the husband-wife relationship is placed before the relationship of parents and children. And much more is said about the relationship between a husband and wife than is said about how to rear one's children. Who is at the center of your home? I hope it's God. And I hope, radiating out from there, it's the love that your spouse shares for you and you for them. And then, out from there, the relationship you have with your children. I think a consistent spiritual life begins with having our center in the right place. Knowing around whom this family relationship revolves. We also need to set priorities and stick to them. This is another part of a consistent spiritual life. 
What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, all the things that you need in life, all the necessities that are required to get about every day, clothing and money, shelter, whatever it may be, all these things will come because you seek the kingdom of God first. Don't worry about those things. Don't let those be the driving force in your life. Don't set your eyes on those things. That's how that sixth chapter of of Matthew ends. Set your focus on the kingdom of God. This may sound extreme, but I have to admire a brother who once told me that very early on, in their family, he established a rule. He said, I don't want a ball to come between me and my Lord. I don't want a ball to come between me and my Lord. Now, I'm not saying that that's where we should all draw the line. But we need to draw a line somewhere, don't we? We need to draw a line somewhere. We need to establish some sort of standard and stick by it. Maybe that means for your family no sports. Maybe it means for your family a couple of sports. Maybe it means just a handful of activities. I don't know what that is. You're the one who has to determine that. But I admire a person who sets a standard and will not allow their family to cross it. And those who compromise end up simply sending mixed signals to their children. Your consistency as a spiritual role model to your children and consistently living out your Christian life has a profound effect on them. And this is something we don't simply have to look at the Bible in order to determine. The Bible teaches us this. If we will simply set our priorities in the right place, children will follow. Fathers, bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Yes, we can help lead our children to faith by living a good, consistent spiritual life, but it's not just the Bible. There are studies that are demonstrating that children who stay faithful to their parents' religion into their 20s and 30s do so because they see a consistent spiritual example at home when they're growing up. Let me read to you just a short quotation from an an article to this effect. The holy grail for helping youth remain religiously active as young adults has been at home all along, parents. Mothers and fathers who practice what they preach and preach what they practice are far and away the major influence related to adolescents keeping the faith into their 20s according to new findings from a landmark study of youth and religion. Just 1% of teens aged 15 to 17 raised by parents who attached little importance to religion were highly religious in their late, mid to late 20s. And I'm running out of time, so let me just read the conclusion by one of the men who led this study. This researcher says, No other conceivable causal influence comes remotely close to matching the influence of parents on the religious faith and practices of youth. It's astounding. If you want your children to know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
into their 20s and their 30s. It's not the activities that happen at church. It's not the youth groups. It's not the worship service. It's not the bands and the lights and all those things. It's you. You and your walk with the Lord. Another thing families can do to defend against the assaults of culture, and I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to make this brief, is just to stay vigilant. One of the verses that I was given in connection with this lesson was Matthew chapter 24, verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Be on guard, in other words. The parallel passage over Mark chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about the, the, uh, the return, his return one day. He says in Mark 13, 33, take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. He's coming like a thief, and what do you need to do to be prepared? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 8, says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. One of the best things you can do to defend your family is to have your eyes open, your ears attuned to what's happening in their lives. And be aware of the things that are happening within society and culture. Stay up to date on societal shifts. Be aware of potential threats in education. Build trust with your children so that when they have those questions and those doubts, they'll come talk to you, not to the teacher who doesn't share your faith, not to their friends who don't know any better, but to you. Build that relationship through communication. I remember I was in the home of of a dear brother and sister in Christ. I happened to be there on a weekday, a school day. And uh, it was the time of day when school was ending. And I remember the mother looked up at the clock. And she noticed the time and she got up. She went over to the stove and she put on a kettle of water. I wonder, well, okay, what was it about the clock and the kettle of water? I mean, what connection was there? Well, about 15 minutes later, in walks her high school daughter. I'm sitting there having a conversation with uh, the father and another man who happened to be there that day. And her daughter sits down. Mom pours the hot water into a cup with a little tea bag. They sit down. They get their calendars open up. And they start talking about the day and what happened. I thought, what a great example. Here's a mom who is being in tune with what's happening in her child's life. She's interested. She's showing interest. She's making herself available. This is part of being vigilant, being watchful. I know another mother who made it her express goal to spend one hour with every one of her children every day. It was just her time with them. That's vigilance. That's investing time in that child, and that cannot be taken away. But it's not just being watchful. It's not just being vigilant. It's also a matter of praying. There are many things in parenting that go way beyond our control. What should we do when we find ourselves in a situation that goes beyond our control? 
Should we give in to fear and worry and doubt? No, the Lord says we need to pray. What did Paul and Silas do as they were sitting in the Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16, verse 25? Singing and praying, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, I don't have the time to turn there, but Paul is talking about his experience at Ephesus and you know, he, he just barely got out of Ephesus with his life, and he's relating that to the Corinthians, and he says, God delivered us, and he makes, it, he makes a, the point to say to the Corinthians that God delivered us as an answer to our prayers. When you find yourself as a parent in a situation where things are just out of your control, get down on your knees and pray. Watch and pray. Be vigilant. Finally, and I don't want to steal your thunder here, Dave, so I'll give you a little introduction here. Everybody remember this, because this is what Dave is going to talk about tomorrow, okay? Have faith. When Paul talks about the things that defend us, he says, above all, above everything else, take up what? The shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. The best thing you can do to your family, do for your family, I should say, is to just trust in the Lord. Trust in his power to deliver you and to deliver them. The psalmist says in Psalm 127, verse number 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Build your house according to the Lord's pattern and trust that pattern. Have faith in that pattern because it works. It works. And there's no sense in watching unless the Lord, unless the Lord is right there with you. In Luke chapter 11, verse number 21, this was another verse that was given to me by the elders. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his own goods are safe. I think as parents, we probably feel sometimes at our weakest, don't we? We don't feel all that strong because our weaknesses are exposed. Our own failings are exposed in parenting. But in those moments, don't forget that he who dwells in you is greater than he who is in the world. That the spirit of the living God is in you as a Christian. He will give you strength. And brethren, we need to trust in him. Trust in that strength. Regardless of what society tells us. Regardless of the influences that are working against us, if we want to defend our family, the best thing we can do is to take up that shield of faith. I love the end of Hebrews chapter 11, and I don't have time to read it. But I'd like you to notice, after the writer of Hebrews talks about all the things that people have endured for the sake of their faith in God, He comes to chapter 12, verse number 4, and says, well, I better read it because I'm going to misquote it, and I don't want to misquote this. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 4, 
you have not yet resisted a bloodshed striving against sin. It's easy to make mountains out of molehills. It's easy to look at the world and feel overwhelmed. But let's not forget that many people have suffered far more than we do. I'm getting messages from the Philippines right now of brethren who are fearing for their life because they live on an island where Islamist extremism is running rampant. We don't have that here in America. We don't. So we need to bear that in mind, brethren. Trust in the Lord. Because so many others have conquered so much more than we have simply by putting their trust in God. Let him be your shield. Let him be the defender of your home. And trust in him in the hour of trial.